Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. At least Antarctica is still coronavirus-free. The lead starts right now. Breaking news with the CDC warning the spread of coronavirus in the U.S. is inevitable. President Trump will speak to the nation this evening about efforts to contain it as his prior words and tweets have, frankly, added confusion to this crisis. Joe Biden pulling a Joe Namath guaranteeing he will win South Carolina as he gets a boost from an old friend. But would a win for Biden there be too little too late? Plus... Some Democrats warning the whole party lost last night's debate and could suffer across the board if Senator Sanders hangs on as the frontrunner. Are their fears correct or out of touch? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with the health lead. In just over two hours, President Trump will hold a news conference from the White House briefing room along with top health officials to attempt to address concerns about the coronavirus. The president wants to calm a jittery stock market and reassure Americans worried about just how prepared the U.S. government is for this crisis. Some of those worried, we should note, are Democratic and Republican lawmakers. Today, for the first time, there were more new cases of the coronavirus outside of China than inside, according to the World Health Organization. President Trump has been spending the day downplaying the seriousness of the virus on Twitter, praising his administration and attacking the media and Democrats. In other words, Wednesday, despite the president's insistence that his administration is doing a great job and, quote, USA in great shape, top medical professionals and health experts in the U.S. are sounding the alarm, warning that the U.S. government needs more resources, saying that the outbreak could lead to critical shortages of medicines and medical devices, and that's not even approaching the worst-case scenarios they discuss. Today, top Democrats demanded billions of additional dollars in emergency funding and attacked the White House's plan as too late and completely inadequate. Our team of reporters is covering the story from every angle. We're going to start with CNN's Caitlin Collins, who's at the White House for us, of course, and a closer look at exactly what President Trump is planning for the news conference coming up. A volatile stock market is amplifying the president's concerns about the spread of coronavirus today, leading him to schedule a press conference for tonight as he accuses the media of trying to make the virus look, quote, as bad as possible. 
While publicly downplaying the outbreak and praising his administration's response, sources say a frustrated Trump is privately lashing out at his own officials, including the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, who has been put in charge of leading the interagency response. I serve as the lead on this. The president and I spoke this morning as he returned from India, and he said, I want to keep being radically transparent. Unlike how the Obama administration handled the Ebola crisis, there's no point person for the coronavirus, and Azar insists he's up to the task without one. It's just the long-standing doctrine that this should be led by HHS with a public health emergency. There's not actually a change. The oddity was actually what President Obama did with the Ebola response. But that decision is coming under increased scrutiny given that the Trump White House also eliminated a position on the National Security Council dedicated to pandemic response in 2018. Sources say Trump is downplaying the outbreak because he fears otherwise will cause more panic in the markets. There's a very good chance you're not going to die. But despite assurances that everything is under control. This has been the smoothest interagency process I've experienced in my 20 years of dealing with public health emergencies. Lawmakers are demanding more information and arguing the additional funding that the White House has requested isn't enough. Coronavirus is under control according to the president. Your reaction to that? I don't think the president knows what he's talking about once again. The concern about whether the administration is prepared to combat the oncoming crisis has been bipartisan. I just don't think we should be, you know, penny wise and pound foolish on that. Now, Jake, when the president does appear in the briefing room later today, that's going to only be his second time ever coming in there with the reporters. The first was at a meeting with Border Patrol agents in January of last year. But this time he'll be joined by members of the coronavirus task force that the White House has created. That consists of largely other members of the administration that have pretty big jobs like Deputy Secretary of State, National Security Advisor. As the White House is continuing to insist, they do not need someone who is the point person on all of this. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, thank you so much. And just to give you an idea of how fast the coronavirus spreads, Italy is now reporting 400 coronavirus cases. Last Friday, there were three. France overnight announced its first coronavirus-related death, and the first known case in Latin America was just reported in Brazil. As CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, top American health officials are now warning efforts to contain the virus may not work in the long haul. There's a preemptive state of emergency in San Francisco. We need to allocate more resources to make sure that we are prepared. Hundreds of infected and potentially infected Americans are isolated or quarantined on military bases. At spring training in Florida, the Red Sox keeping a young Taiwanese pitching prospect who arrived from Taipei last week quarantined for days just in case. You need to be prepared for what very likely will occur. We need to be able to, to think about how we will respond to a pandemic outbreak. The federal government now saying it needs to stockpile 300 million more masks. I do want to caution, it will take time because China, as you met, rightly mentioned, China does, yeah. co- does control a lot of the raw materials as well as manufacturing capacity. Thank you. And this morning, a warning from the CDC on ABC. And we recognize that our very strong measures here in the United States to contain the virus, to keep it limited to very low numbers, may not hold for the long haul. Right now, there are 60 confirmed cases in the U.S. Among them, 42 from aboard the Diamond Princess cruise ship, three repatriated from China, eight infections in California, two in Illinois and one each in Massachusetts, Arizona, Washington and Wisconsin. 
clues to what we could face here from Italy, where there are 400 cases and 12 deaths. Schools, universities and museums are closed in Milan. Ash Wednesday services cancelled in many places. The Italy versus Ireland rugby game postponed and 11 northern towns now on complete lockdown. No one in, no one out. And we are also hearing from US Airlines. Delta today saying they are further curtailing their schedules between the US and Asia. Today saying that their flights between here and South Korea will be cut back. We also heard today from the mayor of Los Angeles who says that at LAX they are disinfecting every hour. But Jake, even he admits even those measures, he said there is no way we can be 100% secure. Jake. All right, Nick Watt in Los Angeles for us. Thank you so much for that report. The U.S. military is trying to figure out how many people may have been exposed in their ranks after a soldier tested positive for coronavirus in South Korea. The Pentagon says he is the first service member to come down with the virus. Troops obviously work and live in close quarters, which makes them especially vulnerable to exposure. And that is leading to concerns that a spread of the virus could hurt U.S. military operations in the region. CNN's Barbara Starr joins me now live from the Pentagon. And Barbara, the military has put new restrictions into place and put some soldiers in quarantine, but there really is no clear solution here. There's no solution for the military any more than there is for civilian society, Jake. This is a 23-year-old male Army soldier. He is now in a negative uh, pressure isolation chamber, something that will help prevent cross-infection, where he is being treated in South Korea, 15 additional members in self-quarantine. There are travel restrictions across the Pacific now for the U.S. military, as well as restrictions in some parts of the Middle East, perhaps most interesting the border between Kuwait and Iraq now essentially closed. So that means the U.S. military will be looking for other ways to resupply the U.S. military mission in Iraq. They will have to increase their efforts to bring supplies in by air. There is also a look at all military exercises. We may quickly learn in the coming hours that uh, key exercises in South Korea, for example, have been scaled back. So no longer can the military say this is not really impacting them. Today on Capitol Hill, Pentagon leadership asked if they needed more money and more resources, and there was not a very clear answer on that. Have a listen. We have not had that discussion yet internally. We can't give you a definitive answer whether we're going to need additional resource or not. Uh, we are taking all the appropriate measures right now, and we're doing the estimates of the situation, so we owe you some answers. Oh, then some answers. So the answer is nobody knows right now. And of course, the ultimate question at the moment, or at least one of the ultimate questions, will U.S. military families have to be brought back to the United States if this infection grows? Uh, this is uh, something that has been quietly discussed. No decisions, no need to do it uh, is seen at this time. But a Pentagon official told me earlier today, right now, they feel nobody has a clear idea where all of this is headed. Jake. All right, Barbara, start at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Uh, what you should do as the coronavirus spreads in the United States, a doctor and infectious disease expert will join me next. Plus, why a Democrat from a state Trump won in 2016 now says the candidates running against him are only helping his chances at re-election. Stay with us. If we have a pandemic, almost certainly we're going to get impacted. 
President Trump's top health officials warning Americans that the coronavirus spreading is, quote, inevitable. And for the first time since the virus broke out, there are now more cases, new cases, outside of China than inside, according to the World Health Organization. Joining me now to discuss, Dr. Erica Chinoy. She's the Associate Chief of the Infection Control Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Dr. Chinoy, thanks for joining us. There are only 12 labs in the U.S. that can test for coronavirus at this time. How, how significant a problem is that? Well, so I think it is limiting in terms of our ability to test patients who might have coronavirus. However, um, I know that there's a plan in place to make that test more widely available. So um, as has happened in the past with other the other coronavirus, most recently MERS in 2012, eventually states labs were up and running um, and then there eventually became commercial uh, tests available. So the FDA uh, warned that some medical products such as face masks or gowns could be at risk for shortages. Does wearing a face mask prevent coronavirus from spreading? Should people start stockpiling them now? No. Um, And maybe I'll explain this because this is one of the most common questions I get from colleagues and from family members alike. So why do we put surgical masks on patients? So if you have uh, a cough or you're sneezing, um, like you might have the flu, um, every time you cough and sneeze, droplets of the, uh, that contain that par- virus particles are coming out of your mouth. And so when we put a surgical mask on a patient, we're containing that from spreading. If you're healthy and walking about, um, there's really no need to be wearing the mask. And I, I do worry, number one, it's a, a false sense of security. Number two, it, it eventually will impact the supply, and we're already feeling the impact of the supply at the hospital and in healthcare settings where we need those masks both to mask patients who are ill and also to protect healthcare workers. There's a growing number of cases in Europe. American students studying abroad have been told by several universities to, to come home. Is, is that too drastic, yeah. do you think? Is, is it really not safe for the students to be in Europe right now? So I think uh, it's hard to say. I think the individual risk to one person um, in a country of you know millions of people, and now we have 400 cases in Italy, but as you mentioned in the break, we had a few last week. Um, maybe that individual risk is small, and uh, to that individual, even if they were infected, maybe they wouldn't have severe disease. But I think what we don't know is how disruptive this is going to be to travel. And when they return, if there may be restrictions on their movement, um, as we've seen in the past when people uh, were coming back from China. So I think it's probably wise to be looking at the daily updates with respect to what's going on because the situation is so fluid. The Journal of the American Medical Association released a paper this week looking uh, at data, Chinese government data, we should point out, uh, more than 72,000 mm-hmm. coronavirus cases. Uh, according to this uh, study by JAMA, they say the fatality rate for those who have contracted coronavirus is 2.3%. Uh, there were no deaths for those nine and younger who contracted it, but older people had higher fatality rates than that, uh, 8% for people in their 70s, almost 15% for people in their 80s. Yep. Put this in perspective for us and also Given that the data came from the Chinese government, do you trust it? So, first of all, um, I think this is one of the this is the largest study to date looking at this. And what I took from that study was number one, a two percent fatality rate overall. If we think that um, there is a portion of the cases out there that aren't even presenting to hospitals to be tested, 
the fatality rate may actually be lower when all the dust settles. The second part is that distribution in age and really seeing the very high fatality rates among our oldest, the oldest population there. And I think that mirrors what we see uh, with influenza and other uh, sorts of viruses that the oldest um, are generally the most fragile um, and they're the ones who have the higher fatality rate. So I think when the dust settles, we may learn that the fatality rate is lower than 2%. I don't know how much lower than 2%, but there will definitely be segments of the population, those with underlying um, disease like heart disease or lung disease, and again, the, ver the very elderly, who will be more impacted than the, uh, the rest of the population. Uh, doctor, uh, as quickly as you can, uh, if possible, what should people at home be doing other than washing their hands several times a day? I think they just have to keep aware of the news. And I think what the CDC is really telling about preparing for the general public is that these are, there are, they have to keep up to date on what's going on, but also be prepared that things may change in their life that they might not have expected. Schools may be closed. Employers may have to adjust to that by allowing parents to work from home or figure out flexible arrangements. Travel may be impacted. Large gatherings may be impacted. So I think what they're doing is preparing us that things may not be the same and uh, as usual. It may not be business as usual if and when uh, COVID comes to the United States. All right, so mentally prepare yourself, keep alert, and wash your hands several times a day. Dr. Erica Shinoy, thank Absolutely. you so much. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Former Vice President Joe Biden guaranteeing victory in South Carolina, how a huge endorsement from the state may ch might change the race. Stay with us. Turning to the 2020 lead now, Vice President Joe Biden getting the much-anticipated and coveted endorsement from top South Carolina Democrat House Majority Whip James Clyburn. The backing comes just 72 hours before Saturday's critical Palmetto State primary. Biden insisting he will win South Carolina, but as CNN's Abby Phillip reports, it's unclear whether a Biden victory would ultimately change the likelihood that he becomes the nominee. Former Vice President Joe Biden scoring a major endorsement from the Dean of South Carolina Politics, Congressman Jim Clyburn. But I want the public to know that I'm voting for Joe Biden. South Carolinas should be voting for Joe Biden. It comes at a pivotal time for Biden in a state where he has guaranteed victory. If you don't win South Carolina, will you continue? In I will race? win South Carolina. The former vice president relying heavily on his support from the state's large African-American population to give him the edge. Biden hoping South Carolina will be a launching pad after three straight losses in Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada. I promise you this. If you send me out of South Carolina with a victory, there will be no stopping us. We'll win the nomination, we'll win the presidency. Meantime, the contentious Democratic debate in Charleston making crystal clear who the other candidates in this race believe is the one to beat. I, I'm, I'm hearing my name mentioned a little bit tonight. His rivals taking issue with Sanders' past votes on gun legislation. Bernie voted five times against the Brady Bill. And monitor the waiting period. The cost of his plans. No, the math does not add up. And questioning his electability. If you keep on going, we will elect Bernie. Bernie will lose to Donald Trump. Sanders' rivals now scrambling to stop his momentum going into Super Tuesday. Well, this race has a frontrunner. It's Senator Sanders, even though most Democrats are looking for something else. But the negative turn of the campaign rubbing some Democrats back in Washington the wrong way. 
And I hope they'll get their acts together and talk about the future and talk about issues instead of trying to destroy each other. Last night's debate was an embarrassment for everybody. And Jake, the Biden campaign also announced today that they would be airing new ads in Super Tuesday states. They're calling it a six-figure ad buy. And among the ads airing will be one uh, featuring President Obama speaking about Joe Biden. But of course, that buy is going to be dwarfed by $38 million that Michael Bloomberg already has in Super Tuesday states. And that's just the ads that feature uh, President Obama again talking about Michael Bloomberg, Jake. Yeah, six-figure ad buy isn't really actually all that much for a Super Tuesday ad. <laughs> Abby Phillip, thank you uh, so much. Uh, let's chat about all this. Uh, and Angela Ryan, let me start with you because you know uh, the dean of South Carolina Democrats, uh, Majority Whip uh, Jim Clyburn. Um, how important is it for Joe Biden that Clyburn has endorsed him uh, right before the South Carolina primary? Well, first, I think we have to look at the timing. Um, we are just a few days away from South Carolina's primary. And I think that um, that means that Congressman Clyburn had an extensive amount of deliberation. If it was really going to be helpful to Joe Biden. It probably needed to be when early voting started mm. um, in South Carolina, um, particularly for those among us who um, are day-to-day -day wage workers and have to take time off to go vote. Um, I also think that um, he feels in some way compelled um, to, to endorse Joe Biden. They are longtime friends. Um, you probably know uh, Joe Biden, when in the Senate, was an associate member of the Congressional Black Caucus when they had that. Um, so he's a long-term friend, um, political friend and ally of Congressman Clyburn. So it's almost like he kind of owed him. I don't know how helpful this will be. Hmm. There are a number of people, um, particularly the younger folks, who feel like they need someone who's speaking to their issues. And just to tell you how much of a divide this particular election has caused, we can look in Congressman Clyburn's own family. His grandson is knocking on doors right now for Pete Buttigieg. For Pete Buttigieg. Absolutely. Interesting. Uh, and it's not, it's no laughing matter. That's no, 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 I'm saying, no. You know, it's, it's, but I'm just saying it is that kind of no. primary. Yeah, no, yeah. there's more of a, 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 an age gap in the, the Democrat, Democratic uh, electorate than in any other um, let me ask you, Alexander Rojas, and we should point out that you work for Sanders in 16, although right now you haven't endorsed anybody. But as a progressive, you like both Sanders and Warren the most. Um, do you think that if Joe Biden doesn't win South Carolina, that's that's it for him, practically speaking? Uh, yeah, I think the numbers bear that. I think when you make your entire argument about electability, it means that you have to win. And so this is going to be the third state that Joe Biden has not won. And I think at the debate last night, he set the bar so high. He said, I am going to win South Carolina and that he is going to ma win by a huge margin. So I think... Uh, that is an expectation that now voters have, right? I think especially heading into Super Tuesday states, uh, he's probably very concerned about stopping the momentum for Bernie Sanders, who mm -hmm. I think uh, either way, again, like just within uh, what looking at the polling uh, among African-American voters, but obviously the entire electorate, he's continuing to rise. And so I think the question is after when it comes to Super Tuesday after South Carolina and the results is there going to be anyone to stop Bernie Sanders? Just a friendly amendment really quick. It, this is actually going to be the fourth contest. If he were to not lose this fourth contest and the first very black primary, then he has a real problem. So just that it's the fourth contest. Uh, and David Urban, we should point out you're, you're an advisor to Trump for 20, uh, 2020. Um, it seemed a while ago, uh, before Ukraine scandal and impeachment and everything, that, that the president was most worried about Joe Biden. Uh, do you think that Biden still is the biggest threat to his reelection? Listen, I mean, you, you look at the, the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that Michael Bloomberg has spent to date. Obviously, you can't discount that. Um, it doesn't seem to be moving the needle much. Um, 
I am more concerned about the, the durable coalition that Bernie Sanders has built that is continuing to grow, that is continuing to rake in money and to spread all across America. It's like the flip side of the Trump coin is the Sanders coin, right? Folks will wait in line in the snow and rain that will fill a stadium, that will show up no matter what the weather's like. There's a real passion and enthusiasm for, for Bernie Sanders. I don't see I mean, Pete, Pete Buttigieg has some energy as well, but I think that the Sanders coalition is is pretty energized. And so, uh, you know, th- those, those are the two folks who are asking me mm. who, who are the most problemsome. Bloomberg because of his money. And uh, Bernie, because Bernie, Bernie, I, I think Sanders has the possibility to create a new coalition. And I don't think the old rules apply anymore. You know, we think about politics in this traditional way, sort of, well, you need someone who's more centrist. You need someone who appeals to this population or that. It's clear Bernie Sanders appeals to some people and appeals in a very significant way. He's going to be able to motivate potentially younger voters. Now, I know we don't we never like to rely on younger voters. If you're a political operative, you say that's fool's gold. But the reality is there is something there in the same way there was for Donald Trump with certain populations in the Midwest, people who felt aggrieved, people who felt the establishment was not working for them. Now you have Bernie Sanders speaking to a new population that could potentially be dispositive for him. So I just think we have to think about this a little bit differently. The traditional notion that because he's extreme, which he is on issues, I just don't know that that matters as much. You know, let's, uh, let's just take a quick, we need to squeeze in a quick break. And we're going to still talk about this when we come back. A former presidential candidate just called Bernie Sanders positions disastrous for Democrats. But is that how voters see it? Stay with us. If you keep on going, we will elect Bernie. Bernie will lose to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump and the House and the Senate and some of the state houses will all go red. (laughs) That was 2020 Democratic candidate, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, suggesting that if Bernie Sanders, the front runner, is the eventual nominee, it will hurt not just the presidential race, but all down ballot Democrats. Uh, Let's uh, discuss. uh, And and Alexander, let me start with you. Um, Just moments ago, CNN's Manu Raju caught up with Congressman Tim Ryan. Uh, He was a former Democrat running for president. He represents like a working class area of Ohio. He's now a Biden supporter. And he called Sanders policy positions disastrous for Democrats. And then he said this. I think having uh, Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket, you know, I don't think there's any chance of taking out Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham. I think it complicates things in places like Colorado, uh, New Mexico, uh, Arizona, Uh, makes it harder. Um, You know, and then Florida, obviously, now with the Cuba stuff. I mean, that just, you know, totally puts us behind the eight ball in in, uh, Florida. What do you what do you think? I mean, I think that it's a reality right now that most Democrats, not just Bernie Sanders, running for president are far more progressive than the swing districts there. And that's including someone like Joe Biden, right? The first two or three times he ran for president, he was staunchly against a public option. And what do you look at most of the Democrats that are running in these swing seats? They support a public option. And that is because, and we're seeing it result after result on these early, in some of these early states and saw it in Nevada, People want, are hurting, right? And they want a, a, a health care system that is going to put them over mm-hmm. profits. And despite millions of dollars of disinformation here, uh, Americans are still overwhelmingly choose to go with a Medicare for all or a single payer type system. I think the other thing that's important to point out is that we heard these same critiques about down ballot being lost with Barack Obama in 2008. And so that, again, solidifies the fact that I think 
Bernie Sanders is the front runner. He's going to be taking these hits left and lip, uh, hits yeah. left and right. Or Donald Trump in 2016. Say, in 2016, but, exactly. You know, so actually, there's research that t- that talks about this and shows when you've got an extreme, a more extreme presidential candidate, you actually open up some running room for people down ballot, so they can take positions that then look more reasonable, whether on health care. I mean, look, part of this, I think, is Bernie Sanders is actually pitching. I I, I don't agree with any element of the policy proposal, just to be clear. But free health care. Free college, free X, Y, Z. After a while, it sounds pretty good to people who are aggrieved with the system, who don't believe that the establishment is doing the job it needs to be doing for them, who want to see the swamp drained. This is stuff that is music to people's ears. So I agree that there's an extremism here, but I think potentially it could benefit down ballot, but also it could benefit people who are looking for something different. What do you think? Because obviously uh, you're concerned about keeping the House of Representatives in Democratic control. Yeah, I think, first of all, we have to give um, voters a little bit more credit. I think it is um, a lazy argument to say that based on who's at the top of the ticket, you can't make a decision, an isolated decision about this proposition or this people particular... Do, but people do vote more straight party line than they than they have in the past. Sure, but let me just give you another example. There was Amendment 4 on the, on the ballot in Florida, which would reenfranchise several people who were returning citizens from um, incarceration. Those There were people who voted for that ballot initiative who were Republican. So it had 64% approval or whatever. So people are still able to decipher, this person is more in alignment with my positions. This person is not. I just don't think it's a real thing. So there's one thing to say, listen, candidates matter as well, right? So, you know, Democrats have been getting great, you know, House folks to run for House seats. It it all depends on who the candidate is. This could be candidate by candidate race in these congressional districts. Um, They're going to be more in play, right, if you have in in these 33 Trump districts, right? But but those are all very localized. So one, let me, I want to ask you about this, because um, if you look at uh, the crosstabs of the most recent Washington Post, ABC News poll, uh, where Sanders is, is doing really well, in the head-to-head matchups between Democrat versus Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders does the worst with white college-educated women who are credited in many ways with helping the House become Democratic in November 2018, uh, that Bernie Sanders is the weakest among white college-educated women. Um, is that a concern at all, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things here. I think one, to kind of fold into what we were all talking about, voters don't necessarily make decisions whether or not someone is a moderate or whether someone is a progressive. It's not necessarily ideological. It is about who is putting forward policies that are not only going to defeat Donald Trump, but are actually going to transform the lives of the poor and working people in this country. And I think uh, largely the voters are asking themselves that question. I think number two, obviously that demographic is really important. They were critical to the House. Uh, but they also are, you know, there's a number of candidates in the race. And I think it's also, we have to talk about the new generation of Democratic voters that the Democratic Party has to pay attention to. And they are increasingly young. They are increasingly black, increasingly Latino. Uh, and if we want to be able to have a turnout um, that, you know, to, that we did not get in 2016, where we saw a lot of those that demographic of people sit at home that cost us the general election. I think that, you know, we have to be concerned about also not just talking to the same voters that we always talk. You to. got that turnout, just not in the right states. But uh, everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about. Keep it here for the night. Two of the CNN Democratic presidential town halls tonight, live from Charleston, South Carolina. Michael Bloomberg is up first at seven o'clock, followed by Joe Biden at eight. Senate, Senator Amy Klobuchar at nine. Senator Elizabeth Warren at 10. That's all right here on CNN the Democratic presidential town halls round two. Breaking news, President Trump's frustration with his top officials on the coronavirus. Stay with us.
Breaking news sources telling CNN that White House officials are considering appointing a coronavirus czar to lead the administration's response to the growing outbreak. The sources say President Trump is privately frustrated with his secretary of the Department, Department of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, who has been so far leading uh, the effort. CNN's Caitlin Collins is live for us at the White House. And Caitlin, the White House was denying this earlier today. Uh, what's the latest and what changed? Yeah, Jake, actually, they were saying that the president was pleased with the way Alex Azar was leading all of this. But that is not what we are being told by sources who say actually the president has been pretty frustrated with him in recent days, has been lashing out at him privately because he feels like he's being left out of some critical decisions, only finding out about them later after people are complaining to him about them. And two of those decisions are one to let those Americans who were on the cruise ship that tested positive for coronavirus back into the United States, a decision the president later acknowledged was the right one. And two, that decision initially to put those patients at a FEMA facility in Alabama, which, of course, the president later faced a blowback over from the state's representatives. He later changed his mind. They are no longer going to be housed there. But this all comes as the president has been questioning whether or not Alex Azar is really up to the task of handling this and leading this crisis. Now, the White House has denied this. They've said they're not looking for anyone, but we are being told they have been considering this. And, Jake, we should also note it comes as Azar was on Capitol Hill testifying earlier earlier today, believing he does not need to believe that there is a need to appoint any other point person to this, saying that he believes it belongs at Health and Human Services, that that should be uh, the agency that is leading this response, though there are questions about whether or not that's going to change. And one more person we should point out that the president and other White House officials have also been frustrated with in all of this is that CDC official who warned yesterday that it is not a question of if, but when this outbreak is going to start to spread in the United States. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Democrats are raising new questions today about the acting director of national intelligence, Richard Grinnell, and his qualifications for his new, new job. This morning, the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer asked the Justice Department to investigate reports that Grinnell failed to disclose payments he received on behalf of foreign countries. Grinnell's attorney told The Washington Post that his client has never been paid to express a foreign policy opinion. Joining me now is the former counsel at the Office of Director of National Intelligence, Kerry Cordero, and the former FBI senior intelligence advisor, uh, Phil Mudd. So just to be clear, one of the foreign entities Grinnell worked for includes a Mold- Moldovan, Moldovan, uh, how, am I pronou- how do you pronounce that? Moldovan, <laughs> uh, somebody from, a politician from Moldova, yeah. uh, sanctioned by the U.S. for corruption, who has ties to Putin. And Schumer wrote, if the reports regarding the nature of Mr. Grinnell's undisclosed work with foreign entities are accurate, He may be subject to potential civil and criminal liability, as well as vulnerable to blackmail in his new position in the intelligence community. Any illegal activity would obviously disqualify him. Uh, What what do you make of this? I I think this is pretty straightforward. Look, I had to fill out a bunch of financial disclosure forms. Let me give you a simple question. If a staff official from the government has to fill out a financial disclosure form about contacts with foreign officials, in my case, did you take a pen worth more than 200 bucks from a foreign government And this individual, that is the acting director of of national intelligence, didn't fill out the forms, filled them out improperly or did something improper. If he's got standards that don't match what the workforce has to do, that's a problem. Is there is there a way, Carrie, that maybe he was paid for advising and he argues, well, the the comments I made that coincided with this, this, you know, people that were paying me these interests uh, are not the reason why I did it. Is that 
Does that pass the smell test? So there are differences. So there's a few different requirements he would have to abide by. So the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which is what Senator Schumer is talking about, is a registration requirement. If you're doing lobbying activity, being paid from a foreign government or a foreign principal is the name is the word that's used, um, and then you're doing lobbying activity, you have to register with the Justice Department. So that's one question. Was he doing that type of activity? And then two, did he, if he was, did he fail to register? So that goes to your question about what the nature of the activity is. But then there's also questions if he was receiving the payments, whether or not he was transparent about that during his confirmation process, and then separately whether he disclosed any of those foreign payments in his security clearance process. All of those are potential areas where if he was not transparent about it, he uh, might have some issues now, certainly in the position of director of well, time out, time out. Yeah. the penalty flag here. I agree with this. But let me make this simple. That is, you're going to deal with a mountain of red tape and regulations. The simple interpretation as a former official is appearance of impropriety. I don't know what the regulations say. I don't know what the law says. But if there's an appearance that you did something for pay from a foreign government and you weren't transparent, I don't care about the law and regulations. The, the, the sort of standard we had in government was appearance of impropriety. You cannot appear to do something wrong, regardless of whether it crosses a T or doesn't cross a T. So um, the other thing is that even before this, uh, people were questioning whether or not Democrats were questioning whether or not uh, Rick Grinnell was the best person for this job. He doesn't particularly have any intelligence expertise, uh, although he uh, is an ambassador, was an ambassador uh, to Germany. But people were basic Democrats are basically saying this guy is just a partisan knife fighter. He's not an intelligence professional, not a national security professional. Right. Uh, here is the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff talking about Rick Grinnell. I think he has little to no relevant experience uh, except in being a Trump loyalist. Uh, and the level of confidence that we can have that we will get fully informed of threats to our elections has just uh, gone down to practically nil. Do you, do you buy that? I mean, is, I mean that's pretty sure. stark. I mean, from the perspective of the intelligence community, in the director of national intelligence and in the intelligence community more broadly, there's only a few people who are political appointees. Everyone else, like Phil, were career nonpartisan officials. So to have somebody who is an extreme partisan appointed as the head of the agency that is supposed to coordinate the whole rest of the intelligence community makes it seem like then information that the intelligence community is providing to Congress is going to be tainted in a political way. And the appointment of him falls into a bigger picture that we're seeing with this administration, which is that they are breaking down the institutions in the national security community. So we see it in the leadership vacuum at DHS, where most of the leadership positions are not filled by Senate-confirmed individuals, and now they're starting to do it in the intelligence community as well. And so what I think we're seeing is a breakdown of so many of the structures that we both worked in mm -hmm. to build in the post-9-11 environment being undone and being broken down. And we saw McConnell basically warn the president a couple of days ago, please appoint a national security and intelligence professional to this job. He didn't say Rick Grinnell does not fill that role. He didn't say John Radcliffe uh, and Pete Huckstra don't fill that role. Uh, but the implication, I thought, was pretty stark. It, it was. And, and watch two different questions. There's a question of expertise, which I think is a little bit misleading. And there's a question of partisanship, as Kerry talked about. Look, not everybody knows the business I grew up in. It's complicated. But you have to have somebody who, especially going to questions about election threats, will speak truth to power, not only in the Oval Office, but the American people. Separate out whether somebody has a lot of experience with whether you trust them when they, they talk to us. The trust issue is more important. All right, Phil Mudd, Kerry Cordero, thank you so much. President Trump speaking soon as health officials say now is the time to prepare 
for a coronavirus outbreak. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 